friends and welcome to another True Tone Lounge. Today we have the the pleasure of sitting down with Ray Flack. Yeah. Ray, yeah, Ray uh, made a, a huge impact on the Nashville scene when he arrived in the late 70s and through his work with uh, Ricky Skaggs and Jamie Hartford and Kathy Matea and Marty Stewart and all sorts of session work and just his unique playing style that was unlike kind of what anyone else was doing at the time, you know, where a lot of guys were using light gauge strings and, uh, and, and with, <laughs> with a light touch and Ray, and, and Ray came on the scene with heavy, you know, bigger, heavier strings and a more aggressive uh, attack and a, and a heavier right hand and a, and a meaty tone that sometimes even had a little bit of dirt on it, you know, which, you know, it, and no one died from it. So, well, you know, just to interrupt you there, I always equated my playing to a construction worker. Yeah. And if the, if the solo was really hard, I'd, I'd wear a, a hard hat for the session. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. Not true. <laughs> but it makes a good story. So, uh, yeah. Ray, th thank you so much for being willing to do this. And uh, sure. uh, just excited, you know, because... Uh, you know, frankly, you know, you, uh, you know, you made this huge impact and then, and then there, there kind of came this, uh, you know, what happened to Ray Flack kind of thing. And that was one of the things that, you know, I wanted people to know that one, you're still here and two, you're still doing, you know, wonderful creative things. And so I wanted to start off by talking about your, your latest endeavor, which has been writing and that's been a real spark for you. So tell, tell us about that. Well, um, for some reason, I just, decided I'd write a novel. Um, no rhyme, no reason. And I've always been a fan of um, and interested in the Voynich manuscript, which has been carbon dated to the 1400s and nobody's ever been able to decipher it. So I just sat down and wrote a story about it being stolen. Um, and and while it's not really finished, and I didn't know what I was doing, and one friend of mine who went to journalism school said, boy, there's a lot of bloody exclamation marks in there. Because, <laughs> you know, I didn't know, I, and I'm just writing. But what I came out of there with was um, what great fun it is creating characters and how they look and rooms and stuff like that. So I kind of finished that, if you will. And then I thought, well, Time to write the autobiography, with which I'd been threatening to do. And I started writing that, and that was what it is. It, it's actually finished, you know, I got to the epilogue. And, um, but I still need to go back and tighten it up and edit it before. And, and I don't have any publishing outlets for it, so we'll see. Yeah. And, and, and then, <laughs> from there, you know, I said to myself, well, you had that title banging around in your head for as long as we can remember, <laughs> we being me and I. Mm -hmm. And um, it was The Boy Who Would Be Birds. And I don't know where the title came from. It was just banging around in my head at least 30 years. 
So I just said, well, let's sit, sit down and write the damn thing. So I did. You know, I'd spend uh, three or four hours out on the deck under the, with the classical radio, the music going, and, and just wrote this, this um, whimsical hijinks tale. And, and I've almost finished the second one. I've just got the last couple of paragraphs to finish, but it's just great fun. And, and as I said yesterday, you know, I don't, if you want to make money, you probably shouldn't write a book or for that matter, pick up a guitar. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> Words but of wisdom from Uncle Ray. <laughs> you know, but it's true. You know, I didn't pick up a guitar. I didn't think about money. You know, I was way too young to think about that. And, I, you know, while I'm not too young to think about money now, I, uh, you know, I certainly didn't start writing it to make money. I even, didn't even think about it. It was just like, oh, man, this is great fun. And I'd be giggling and chuckling in my, in my own phrases. You know? <laughs> and it was, you know, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. So Show that's us what that. I've been up to. Show us the cover of the uh, oh. of the children's book. Oh yeah! Wow. And the artwork, as you can see on there, was done by uh, my friend Michael Snows. I don't know if you know Michael Snows. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, his son, Michael, and I first started working together when uh, when Sterling was about four years old. And one day I'm over at the house, I don't know, when he was about 11 or 12 or something, doing some overdubs for him. And I happened to walk by and I looked down at, at what Sterling was sketching and it was like Superman and Spider-Man. They were just amazing. So when I knew this thing needed, uh, needed some visuals, he was the first person I called. And, you know, that's the meeting. That's Norman's first dive into the sea. <laughs> and, I, and there's a couple of other pictures in there too. And the, the pictures relate to the para, the preceding paragraph. I know you're you're still working on it, but what's the working title of your autobiography? <laughs> it is, I'll spell it, apostrophe K-I-N, apostrophe E double L. Two separate words. Kin L. Yes. Now yeah, yeah, apparently you sussed this, have you? Yes. Oh, okay. Because yeah, yes. several people, several people have. It's a polite way of saying F U C K. Yes. So you could say in the house, you know, if you're around your mom or your dad, you go Kinel, really, or or other situations, you know. Instead of swearing, you can go Kinel. Yeah. So I, I, that was always the title of the book. It was the first thing that sprang to my mind. Kennell fired again, you know, and the inflection, which you can't read into it, but Kennell fired again. <laughs> so, and that's right, because I've been fired lots of times and proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's, let's back up to, uh, you know, just, you know, so one, there's, there's different places that are listed as where you were born. Was it Bogner Regis or... Uh, I, I was actually born in uh, called Milford on Sea okay. in Hampshire, which is, I suppose, about an hour up the coast west. Okay. But I grew up in Bognor Regis, 
Um, and I could see the English Channel from my bedroom window, which was a great way to grow up. Yeah. And I was, I was in the sea 12 hours a day, you know, really, really good to, for the system, you know, great way to grow up. Yeah. And, um, and it, it was, it was a holiday seaside town. Right. Lots of fun. Yes. So <laughs> were these, uh, were these English, you know, Englishmen on holiday or were these internationals? Oh, it, it was mainly, uh, um, English people. I, I don't, well, if, if foreigners came over, I, I, no, that wasn't, yeah just sort of day holiday makers or and they had a big uh, a holiday camp thing down there okay. huge and people would come down there in the chalets that it, it looked like a prison camp they had a, a big fence around it and barbed wires <laughs> <laughs> so uh, was that in one of the ways in which you were exposed to music early on seeing performers you know there or what, what got you into music in the first place well the, the you know and as i say in the book the, the first time i heard apache by the shadows yeah and i was i was at <clears throat> on the beach <coughs> excuse me i was on the beach or in that area and i heard this come out from the jukebox in this little cafe called the perdido memory <laughs> Um, and I heard that and that was it, the game was up. You know, it just, it, the richness uh, of, of the melody, you know, of course, Hank's tone, although he played a strat, but yeah, there you go. Well, he didn't know any better. <laughs> but, yeah, no, he had a wonderful sound, yeah. wonderful tone and sound and phrasing and that was great. But that was it for me. And then, uh, and then my, my parents bought me a five, you know, the usual $5 guitar five, or five pound guitar with, with action that high, yeah. you know, and I didn't know the difference. So I learned to play this thing as, as I'm sure many of us did on, you know, not very good equipment, you know, anyway, it was good. It was good. I didn't know any better. So I just kept playing and, you know, then I found out. And then when I got my Gibson 335, because Blackmore had one, and, oh, and my local hero, who we'll talk about in a little bit, maybe. Um, but everybody was dropping their action sounds so low. And Blackmore was, and, and, and apparently, I never did this, but apparently people were putting a banjo string on the top E and then bouncing all the way down, the bottom string would be what was your fifth string right and, and the, with the action really low yeah you know you you had to play fast because there was no air underneath the strings with which to milk a note exactly you know and i i all this stuff is going rattling around i don't know anything about physics you know but after a while you know when i started jacking the action up uh, and this was much later on i have to say i i would i would tw do a quarter twist on the bridge maybe every month. So I didn't notice the pain and anguish. <laughs> it was you know, gradual. I, yeah, it's the best way to do it, you know. And, it, and well, it, this isn't my guitar. This, this is a guitar that Tommy Emmanuel lent me, bless his heart. Because I had sold mine and I had a gig to do out in Colorado or something. It was probably the last gig I ever did actually. And he lent me that guitar and, and a little amplifier. 
And it, uh, I keep sending him notes saying, hey, I've still got your guitar. He never replies. I, I guess I guess he wanted me to have it. I I, I don't know, but maybe yeah. I shouldn't assume that. But anyway, that's Tommy's guitar. So you so, know, got some of Tommy's chops, <laughs> <laughs> and some of his charm, maybe too. Ah, oh, what a, what a character! Yes. Funny man. So. Now, yeah. What, what do you want me to do when I have to blow my nose here? Or, um... just, just do it and we'll take care of it. Yeah, don't you worry. Sure? Okay, all yeah. right. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, you're listening to, uh, you know, you're, li yeah, you're listening to the shadows and, uh, and then you, you start going along and uh, yeah, let, let's talk about Richie Blackmore. Cause you know, you said Richie Blackmore was a, was a local guy and he was playing a 335, uh, I guess, into a Vox or. Oh, okay. No, let's, let's back up a little bit. Cause okay. my hometown, my hometown hero is a guy called Steve Gordon, who is now still a, well, a dear friend. And, um, Steve was the first person I saw, and I remember going to see Steve play somewhere, and I was going, whoa, you're great, and all this bit, you know. And Steve said, well, if you think I'm good, you should see Richie Blackmore. And in the same conversation, while I was playing Steve's guitar, badly, I'm sure, he said to me, why aren't you using your little finger? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> But I went home that day, that night, evening, whatever, and uh, just started working on the little finger, you know. So, Steve, what's, you're not using your little finger? What's... Yeah. <laughs> well, I've only been playing two, a year. What do I know? But it's a good, uh, and, good okay, so observation. Then, so, so uh, yeah. So, Steve, the, the Outlaws came to, came to town, which Blackmore was playing in the Outlaws. And they were back in Gene Vincent, which was which was cool. Um, and that's the first time I saw him play, and it was just blazingly fast, you know. Because everybody wanted to play fast, play fast, you know. With the low action that everybody had, you didn't have much choice. And I remember go, going up to Blackboard after their gig, and uh, I said, hey, "How long have you been playing, mate?" <laughs> and not being very wise to sarcasm at the time, and he went three minutes. <laughs> it's like, well, well, really. <laughs> so, anyway, he said, "Help me off the, help me off with my amp." And he had an old um, AC30 that was so beaten it would move on the dovetail joints <laughs> like this, <laughs> which is why he needed help taking it off the, you know. Anyway, yeah, but. Um, no, I, I became a, a huge fan, of course. Then when the purple stuff came along, you know, because I, you know, like you just saw me, you know, where did Ray Flack go? Well, I, where did Blackmore go, you know? And then one day I'm walking past a store, a record store, and there was a picture of shades of deep purple in the window. And, uh, so I got all those. And, and later on, funnily enough, when I got to work with, tell me if I'm getting ahead of the game, but when I, later on when I worked with Big Jim Sullivan, Right. Um, his partner in the project for Tiger, the band Tiger, um, Derek Lawrence, produced the first two or three Purple albums. So, you know, and, and G Big Jim taught Blackmore to play. Blackmore would be, Jim would come home and Blackmore would be sitting on his, uh, on his doorstep 
wanted some jobs. <laughs> so, so, so it, you know, it's like this full circle almost, you know. Yeah. So just, you know, because, uh, you know, play, players in the U.S. might not be as familiar with Big Jim Sullivan. So would you just kind of explain the significance of him, you know, because yeah. a lot of guys, a lot of guys here are just not aware of aware of him at all. Yeah, interestingly enough, though, when uh, big, well, okay, Big Jim um, was the studio player in England in the sixties. Played on everything, great solos and wonderful melodic licks, you know. And um, see, don't let me go out on a tangent. Now I've, I've drifted. It's okay. <laughs> so, oh yeah, Big Jim. Okay, so um, Steve. Uh, my mentor was playing with, this is getting a little convoluted here, I'm sorry. But Steve was playing with a band called The Diamonds in my hometown. And they also were the backing band for a major star in England, an American guy called PJ Proby, who yes. uh, I'm sure you've heard the name, but he was huge. In it. Well, Big Jim played on the records. And there's a couple of solos. There's one called, uh, song called Together. And the other one's called Hold Me. And those solos for the 60s are just insane. Go and check them out. Um, so, so Steve, after I got to know Steve a little bit in a couple of years, and I'm 15, 15 years old now, Steve came around and he said, um, hey, I'm going to take two weeks holiday. He said, why don't you fill in for me, Proby? I've only been playing two years, good grief. You know, and I, of course I didn't. I just said, oh, absolutely, no, no problem. Yeah. So Steve would come around and he taught me the whole show from start to finish, and um, including the Hold Me and Together solos, you know, which were great. Anyway, for, I went up to London and stayed at Proby's house, you know, hundreds of people, birds flying in and out left and right. It was quite crazy. And I was just sitting there quietly on the couch, minding my own, own business most of the time. But um, he never did work. So I never did do a gig, which is probably just as well for everybody. He asked me to join the band, which, as I said, you know, great honor. And I got to do my little country things, which Jim loved, you know. He, he, uh, and Jim was doing what I called I mean, he was really the uh, guitar player who played with uh, Pink Floyd, uh, David Gilmore. He really, so he was kind of doing, to my mind, uh, his David Gilmore, Richie Blackmore thing. It was really intense. I see the veins popping out of his neck, you know. <clears throat> but he was a great player and played some amazing stuff. And I would just do my little bending country things, you know. But it, he was always about getting to, you know, to Nashville. Jim was always saying, you need to go to America and kick James Burton's ass. <laughs> I went, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, go on, get over there, you know. I mean, he was right that I needed to go to, uh, to the States and to Nashville. And, you know, I already knew that deep down when I first heard Chet when I was 12. Um, you know, and then hearing area area code six one five in the early seventies, right? And that was oh, that's that's where I got to go. And then Roy Nichols a little later on, you know, I got to be in that country somewhere, you know. 
and um, but yeah, Jim was, and as it happens, I I I would have planned to to come to the states after Tiger, and it would have it wouldn't have been the right time because the, when I did get here, everything just fell into place. I was suddenly working and playing music that I wanted to play that I couldn't find in England, and my playing went up. I mean, it was just a new lease of life. Um, you know, working with uh, Steve Earle in a Tex-Mex band in 79, great, but oh yeah, what the fuck is this? What, what the <laughs> hell is this? <laughs> this is great music. Tex-Mex, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Joe Sun, you know, things like that. But anyway, the, the, when Jim's thing finished, I, I a band called Meal Ticket read its very attractive head. And it, it came together as did the Hartford band. Um, I went down to sit in with these guys. They were called Bill Isha and the Beacons at the time. And I don't know if you know the phrase, you know what a Belisha beacon is? No. It's, it's the thing, it stands at the either, either end of a walkway with a flashing yellow light. Okay. I don't know if they use them. That's called, a, anyway, Steve Simpson. He was always coming up with weird phrases. But he called the band Bill, Isha, and the Beacons. <laughs> anyway, so I went to sit in with them at this at a lunchtime pub gig. There was just four of them. And I sat in, that made five. And my old pal, Chris Hunt, who I first started working with when I was 15, um, he'd just come up to visit and hang out. You know, Chris is a great drummer. And uh, so we finished the lunchtime gig and Chris says, so I don't know how it came about, but Chris drove back down to the South Coast, about Aaron Arbor way to pick up his drums, came back up and we did the evening gig and the band, you know, we all looked at each other and went, oh, we better pay attention, you know, something serious going on. And we had, there were two writers, an external writer and the keyboard player. And they had great songs, phenomenal songs. You know, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> the old phrase PAT. I was talking to somebody about that. Yeah, do you know what that means? PAT? No. Well, if you're in the studio working on dodgy songs, the PAT, polishing turds, you know, it's, yes. which, you know, a little crude. And the first time I heard it, it was a drummer called Owen Hale in the, in the booth in the drum booth when I went down to Muscle Shoals for the first time. We were doing a custom project, you know, and each, I never met these guys, but each time after the track, Owen would just go, P-A-T. And after two or three times, you know, P-A-T, the hell's that? And he went, Ray, we're polishing turds. <laughs> and I, it was funny, I fell about it, you know, it was very, very funny, never heard it before. Uh, anyway, um, boy, can I can I drift or what? Um, oh, this. So, so you you were uh, so after after meal ticket. That's uh, that's oh, when you know you knew. I guess you you knew Don uh, Don Williams, uh, uh, drummer. Right. I I had rode Mac in to play drums on lots of the country gigs we did, and I left meal ticket in February of '78, and Mac went came to the States in February. And um, 
the story of, of, of I know it's not about me, but you know, Mac, Mac was going to go back and teach history in school. He's give out the music game, but he was a huge Don Williams fan and a Kenny Malone fan. So this gig opened up for him where he, where he could play in the opening act just so he could enjoy looking at watching Don, you know? Yeah. Well, he only had, Don only had two members in his band, Danny Flowers and Dave somebody. Pomeroy. No, 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 no. Wait, no, okay. that was this before that. way earlier. Way before. Okay, okay. Um, Dave, I can't think of his last name. But they went back to Don and said, we found the drummer we need. So and off <laughs> Matt went. He never, and he never went back to it, which I, I think is a wonderful story. I, I love tales like that, you know. Yeah. So anyway, so, and ironically, when I left Meal Ticket, you know, basically it was badly managed, you know, and, and well, you know, so I left and um, Phil Kaufman, uh, the mangler, Emmy Lewis, yes. road yes. manager and such. Well, I first met him in a pub called the Nashville Rooms when I was with Meal Ticket and he liked the band. He came down and I remember I'd only just met him a couple of times and we were in the public bar having a couple of beers, you know, and I noticed he was wearing a Flying Burrito Brothers t-shirt, you know, and uh, Graham Parsons, you know, and I went, oh, right. cool shirt. He said, you want it? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I can't, still can't remember to this day because we, we swapped t-shirts then. And I've never been as big as Phil. I, I don't know if he got the T-shirt on or whether I was wearing a really big shirt, but he told me this was the T-shirt that Graham Parsons died in. Wow. Yeah, I know. I, it's like, really? I still get shivers talking about it, you know? So yeah. I've got this T-shirt and I'm wearing it with great pride and it's got holes in it and it's, you know. So I gave it to my girlfriend at the time. She said, oh, I, I can stitch that up, darn that up. And I went, mm. Well, I, I let her have the damn T-shirt and out of the bottom of one of her straw bags that had a hole in it, it, it must have fallen out and it was never seen again. And it wasn't until about two years ago that I could pluck up the courage to tell Phil the story of, of, of you know, and he said, he, if you know Phil at all, you know, he's, he, there's some caustic line coming out all the time, you know, he must have said something, I don't know, but... He was very gentlemanly about because I felt dreadful losing it. You know? Yeah. But anyway. So, so okay. So under now, under under his influence, uh, not not Phil's, but under Max, <laughs> you know, you uh, you you come, you've moved to Nashville, and and you know, I'm guessing you don't, you know, do you have a place? To, are you staying with him, or or you know, what what happened? Oh no! When you... well, when, when, yeah, when I arrived, Mac picked me up at the airport. And I remember thinking, driving in, look at all these adverts right close to the, to the street. You know, the, the way ads come right out to the, you know. Right. That was a new one for me. I went, whoa, what was that? So Matt picked me up. We went back. <laughs> I arrived with a couple of gallon jugs of vodka, duty-free. That was my poison at the time. Um, screwdrivers. So anyway, we go back to Matt's house and... Max already playing. Now, this is in August when I left. Max already been here about six months. He's already on the road with Don. 
And the bass player, Dave the bass player, lived next door to Mac. And Dave let me stay in his house while they were out on the road for six weeks or something. So it, it got me acclimated. Uh, I'd be out every night, you know. Um, I don't, do, you, do you know a, a little bar called Springwater in town? Yes. It's, it's right next to the Centennial Park. And it was a real funky old, and I used to spend a lot of time in there, way too much. It's st I still walk by it you know, and go, no, not again. No. <laughs> no, no, that hangover still hurts, you know. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm out there sort of um, sitting in and, you know, whatever I can do to get out there and play. And, you know, that I was sort of one thing, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself again. It's okay. But it, it um, yeah, it was, it was, and everybody I sat in with, I remember a couple of guys called the Forney Brothers. And I sat in with them a lot, and they they were they were fun to play, and it, it was all fun. It was all new, different stuff for me, and different players and styles and attitude. You know, it was great. I I couldn't get enough of it. You know. So you were also te teaching lessons, and you started teaching Joe's son's guitar player. Yeah, you know, I'd forgotten about that until you mentioned it yesterday. Um, yeah, what was his name? I can't remember his name, but yeah, I, I was. And, and as you reminded me, he he left and, and Joe asked me if I want to join. And um, and I did. And I have to say this uh, about Joe and Skaggs, for that matter, is that they both fought the, the record companies to use the band, the road yeah. band. Right. And to be, to be honest with you, had they not had me playing on the record, I would probably not have done either gig, you know, because what am I going to do, go on the road and play somebody else's stuff? I, I didn't come here to do that. Yeah. You know? So, um, so, uh, so, so you, you were with you, so you were with Joe, you know, play, playing gigs and then evidently you played a, you know, a show on the same bill with, you know, with well, Amy Lou. I tell you what I, I meant to say, let me back up to the February when I, when I left meal ticket. Sure. And the reason I bought Mangler into it. Albert was leaving Emmy Lou in at this month. And I, I was angling for an audition, you know, Mangler, I don't know. Anyway, their last gig before they went to France, the hot band with Albert was um, in Brighton, which is just down the road from me. So I went over there with a pal of mine and um, <laughs> they arrived late. They had no time for sound check and they were leaving directly after the gig to go to France. So imagine this, I'm, I'm sitting playing my guitar plugged in. All these people are just moving around me. Nobody gives a rat's ass about, you know. I mean, Albert's no help, you know. You think, Albert, help, nobody's paying, I'm auditioning and nobody's, so whatever it was. Um, but Skaggs was the only person who came over and said, oh, that's my stuff, you know, oh, thanks. But I didn't get the gig. Frank Record got the gig, and I'm glad he did because I found out later on that Emmy likes to do a lot of C sharps and B flats and stuff. Now I can play in those keys, but where are my open strings? You know, and I wasn't about to go start taking guitars out on the road, you know, one for this and one for that. It's a moot point because, you know, I didn't get the gig. Yeah. 
So, so really, then when I was working with Joe, we played these uh, big European country festivals, um, cast a thousand and total chaos, you know. But uh, I was playing with Joe and Skaggs asked me if I wanted to do the Opry with him when the first time he was going to do the Opry. And Emery Gordy, who, had never, who was Emmy's bass player, um, had never done the opera and he wanted to do it. So I said, sure, hell yeah, you know. And then he mentioned, he said, you know, I'm thinking about putting my own thing together. You know, are you interested? And I already knew, you know, I went, I know where this is going. This is going to be really successful. I don't know how, but I just had a good feeling that as he had been around so many great players and songs and things, his, his, his standard would already you know, his benchmark would already be pretty up there, and it, and it was, you know. So, so I did that, and then we started rehearsing. And as I say, he thought, he you know, the, the studio the record company, going, oh, just hire the studio players. You know? I mean, no, I don't want to do that, you know. And, you know, good for all of us that he didn't, you know. I mean, I guess he, he, he had seen me play with Joe, and I guess he, he went, well, that'll work. That, that noisy banging old bastard, that, that'll work. <laughs> you know, along with the bluegrass and the fiddle and whatever else was going on. Um, so that's what we did. It was, it was, it was great fun. You know, was... So let's, uh, so the, fir the first album you did with, uh, with Ricky was uh, Waiting for the Sun to Shine. And- I believe uh, it was, yeah. yeah. And so, was there pre-production like did did you work did did y'all go to a rehearsal hall and work up the tunes beforehand or did you just go into the studio how how did the how did the album come together i i remember bruce and i and skaggs in bruce's house going over one one of the tunes i can't think what it was but no there was no real pre-production i think we might have rehearsed some of these songs, just getting familiar with it, with them. Um, but no, it's just going to studio and, and bang it out. Yeah. Know? So, so this was a so everyone played at the same time, or were you overdubbing? Well, I certainly overdubbed solos and everything. But yeah, everybody was on the floor. Yeah. And we had some great people too. That unless you look at the credits on them, we had. I, I don't know about this album, but the other albums with Skaggs. He had Lloyd Green playing on it. Yeah, um, I think Weldon played on on a couple of things. Um, Dennis Burnside played piano. Um, it was, oh, Jerry Croon played drums. I remember. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the second CD, the uh, second album, where Joe Osborne was in right. on a session. You know, the and Wrecking and, Crew. Right. Yeah. You know, I got to know quite Joe quite well. I did a bunch of sessions for him, you know, and <laughs> I say this humbly and modestly. I do. It's funny to hear it. Joe would always say to me, he said, see that, that's what that Burton's trying to do. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's just, it was just being a smart ass, you know, but it was so funny. Right. You so know, but, 
you know, I'm, this is kind of a, a gear sidetrack, but I'm guessing by this point, you already had uh, kind of your, your sound together and, and you had kind of gotten into the lab series amp and that, and that did. Rosewood board telly and stuff. So tell us a little bit about getting your sound together. Okay. Let me back up there. Cause I, I worked with the, before, um, before Joe's son, I worked with a, a guy over here called, um, uh, I think of his name, ah, curses. Um, well, anyway, I, I was doing this little gig with him. And it, it was great fun. We were doing all sorts of old, old, old songs I could get related to and play. And we went out on the road and backed Steve Young for a while. You know, the, yes, he's no longer with us, but we, we went out on the road and backed Steve for a while. Um, and Lee, Lee McCormick was his name. And Lee, I didn't have an amp and Lee had my first lab series with a 15 L9, which he gave to me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and ironically, all the amps that have meant something to me have all been gifts. It's the weirdest thing. I mean, That's the BR1 was a gift, Yeah. you know, and those were really the, the you know, interestingly enough, the, the reason the lab meant so much to me, and it took me three months to get used to it because prior to that, I had resigned myself to just playing in, you know, pretty much in the middle of the neck. I couldn't get the low F, pull offs and all that in the key of air forward. If I got the bottom end right, the top end would be too high and tinny and right. vice versa, you know. So I, you know, I had to compromise. I didn't know what else to do about it. So here's this lab series and I hit the low E, and I, or, or let's say an F, and the F on the E string, I went, this is the same. This is a consistent sound. So suddenly the whole neck opened up to me. You know, I, I you know, these, these sort of, um, oh, I didn't turn the amp on, but yeah. Can you, can you hear that at all? Yeah, yeah. Where's that pick? I'll, I'll put the amp on in a minute, but just these sort of, you know, if you, in F. But I couldn't, I couldn't have done those things. It was all like woolly and you couldn't. So anyway, you know, Lee gave me the lab and I, I've thanked him profusely in the book, you know, because he, 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 uh, he, he <clears throat> given me that amp, he set me on a whole new journey, you know, and, oh man, this is great. doesn't matter where I play on the neck, it's me and it's the same sound. It was such a treat, really. So, um, so we did that. Oh yeah, I just wanted to thank Lee for the for the lab, you know, when you started me off. Yeah, and then anyway. and, and then the telly. Oh, the telly! I I, uh, I bought that in '79, I think, and it was advertised. I don't think the magazine around it was called the Traders Post. Yes. I think it was called that. Yeah, it was, it, it was around for those for a in long England. Time. It was like the exchange of, yeah, it, for those in England, it's, it's kind of like the exchange of mark, you know. So anyway, I see this thing in there, and um, I didn't have a car. I remember my good friend uh, T Bone, who was a rhythm guitar player in Lee's band, um, he drove me out there, and this guy had the telly sitting there. He didn't have an amp. 
So I, I played it and I went, how much do you want for this? He said 250. So I knocked him down to 225 and left with this guitar that just sang acoustically before he ever plugged it in. Yeah, I did the sustain was great. Oh, yeah, I'm having this. And it truly was a great guitar, you know, and a damn good price. Yes. <laughs> and and so I know we're kind of getting into gear here, but you you kind of you started modifying the guitar. Oh yeah. Like like you changed the machine heads and you changed I, the bridge well, and so what happened? Absolutely. You know, and I just remembered I, I I've been it's been about six months now. I talking to a, a bass player called Charlie Anderson. Do you know Charlie? Played with Reba and yeah. various people. You know, I've I've known him for years. Well, he worked at Richard Cotton's music store in Hillsborough Village at the time. Yes. And and he put the Schecter, I think it's Schecter Bridge and the shallow heads. And I had a brass nut put in. Um, and uh, the, the black scratch plate came from a friend of mine called Michael Spriggs, who, who gave me that. Um, what else did I do to it? That was about it, you know. But I needed the six piece, I needed the six piece bridge because that three thing, you know, you get one in tune, then the other's out, and I, you know, right. unless unless that's how it comes perfectly in tune. But anyway, I, and you know, it's wiser to be able to control each each one, of course. Right, and the the tune, so but the the regular tuners that were on the guitar weren't weren't working right, and you replaced them, or you weren't. What was wrong with the tuners? I, you know, if there was anything wrong with them, I don't know. I don't remember that, but okay. I changed them out. I, I, because those tuning heads, I think the the workings were actually plastic, were they not? Yeah, the, they, the F, they were, yeah those those tuners with the F on the back of them, they weren't the best tuners that Fender made. So, right, but they weren't the workings inside plastic. They weren't plastic. The, uh, yeah, underneath them, the metal. Yeah, it it wasn't it wasn't as robust as you know like the Clusons that had been on earlier guitars or or like Shalers or something like that. So yeah, they weren't the, yeah. the best tuners. Well, I yeah, but somebody told me that the actual mechanics of it was plastic inside the the chrome, whatever it was. You know, I, yeah. I never looked, but anyway, I don't know why I changed it, but I did, and. Um, it's I'm just thinking now when I had the shallows on it felt a lot more comfortable right you know, I remember that yeah more more it, accurate it, it might have been yeah it, it it felt felt better and it might have yeah. been Charlie's idea to put those on I, I don't remember but yeah. um, so you you got that that, that, that was that, that was that so you got that kind of sound together and then sometimes you do some type of echo device whether it was a Echoplex or a memory well, man or something. I, well, Skaggs, be, because because Albert had an Echoplex, and he was doing all his dingy 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 stuff, you know, which is mm -hmm. great. Skaggs bought everybody an Echoplex, you know, and I mean, I plugged into it, and Jess had this, as I did on the records. I, I borrowed a pedal from Paul Worley, um, who was studio player back then and then he went on to produce lots of stuff right but he lent me a little i don't know what it was so it's just this tiniest little amount of slapback you really couldn't hear it um 
And that's what I used the Echoplex for. And after a while, <laughs> I, got, I got used to it. You know, you get sucked into to these things, you know, as I did with, with the chorus back in England with the Roland JC120. Yeah. Oh, listen to that sound. Oh, yeah, I'll just play that all day long. <laughs> So you, you kind of got your sound, your sound together, and that that be kind of, and also it was a little grittier, you know, at times. So you know, because on yeah. the lab it had a master volume, and you could kind of turn it up, and you could get it where it had a little bit of dirt on the note too. Well, I didn't do that. I had everything at one o'clock. Okay, that was it. You know, it's it, where I never, you know, the, the minutia of guitars and amplifiers. I'm not interested in at all. Okay. You know, once I was, I, I think I've been very fortunate. Once I found a guitar that I loved and I found an amp that let me play the way I always felt or heard me play it. And then it was, I don't, I don't need anything else. You know, I don't need to constantly be trying, trying to change my tone or seeking a different guitar or what can I do with this? Or that. Right. I'm very fortunate that I didn't have that rotten little bastard sitting on my shoulder going, you sure you don't want to change the frets out? You know, yeah. or, or some, <laughs> you sure you don't know, need a 335? Get out of here. No, yeah. not anymore. I've got to tell you. <laughs> no, yeah. get out of here. So, so what was it about the, the, how did the, how did you become kind of a telly guy? How did you kind of find that the, that's, that's your guitar? Well, the first telly I bought, now we've got to go back to 70. One, when I first came back from Germany, I lived in Germany for about five years um, and came back from Germany. And I had a strat at the time. Shh, don't say a word. No. <laughs> edit this out. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I had a strat and, and I'd swapped it for an, a Gibson SG, which I loved the tone of it and everything, but I didn't like the neck, those Gibson frets. And I, I didn't realize at the time it was probably impossible, but I wanted to put a telly neck on this <laughs> SG body, but that didn't happen. So I traded it for this strap. And when I got this gig up in, it's a town on the East Coast called Great Yarmouth. It was a sit down gig, you know, two or three sets a night. But <laughs> when I saw the ad in the paper, it said country rock guitar player in the Melody Maker, which was, you know, the, the, the Bible, if you will, to, Right. find gigs and stuff like that so I, I i go up there and i get the gig and it's not a country rock gig it's rock and roll and country music so we were doing a lot of old rock and roll stuff you know the, the elvis and whatever it was and we were also doing strict country lots of haggard so that's where i first got to hear roy nichols right yeah you know <laughs> the old because you know, the tone he had and those little Django nuances every now and again. Oh, wait, wait, play that again. <laughs> um, and I, I bought a telly in that town. I don't know what happened to the Strat, <laughs> probably threw it in the sea, <laughs> I hope. But um, so I, I got the telly and that's where I, I, I learned lots of these country songs that I'd never heard before, you know. So that was a that was a that, that was a great joy to do that gig, um, and while we were there, the occasional floor show would come in, and we would back up these people. Well, uh, 
now old friends of mine, but then uh, little Jenny was a country singer and her husband, Paul, they came up there to do a little gig. Jenny did lots of gigs around the country. She was quite famous. And um, so we backed them up and they, they said to me, look, you know, when you get back to London, give us a shout. And, and I did, and it was through Paul that I found my first country gig, you know, doing the pubs and everything. So, you know, once again, I thanked him in the book, but thanks again. Yeah. You know, because it's all about connections, you know, and who you know and the right time and all that stuff. And I, I'd never been that kind of obsequious, um, you know, I, I must go where so-and-so is with the chance, you know, that kind of, find it incongruous, to be honest, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, if, if, if you run into somebody and they go, oh man, let me call you for a session or something, that was great. But I was never that sort of person that would go somewhere where I knew somebody was. To uh, to suck up or what's what do they call it over here? Um, schmoozing, schmoozing for gurming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. Yeah, I was never that that way. But um, okay, get yes. back. So yeah, so so yeah, so that that kind of gets us, you know, to the into the Telecaster thing. You're you're playing with Skags. So Ricky, of course, had just gotten off playing in the hot band, you know, with Albert. Was there any kind of pressure of, of him trying to make you be like Albert or were you allowed to do completely your no. own thing? No. And, and if he had started that nonsense, I'd have been gone. Yeah. You know, now I'm 30 years old and I don't want you telling me what to play. Right. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I mean that hard nose, but that said, you know, you're there to apply what you do to, to songs, you know, but yeah. no, he, he, he never, ever, he, you know, funnily enough, he did say something once at rehearsals and I can't remember what, what <laughs> I do remember what I said, because he said, um, he said something about Albert and I, I, I don't remember specifically what it was. I'm doing this my way, you know, or something like that. And that's the only, it's interesting you ask that because that's the only time I can remember. I don't even know what he was, what he was after. He was just suggesting, I think, a, a, a style of, but not, not copying Albert. I, right. don't, I don't think he ever wanted that. And he would yeah. never have got it. I can't play like Albert. Yeah. And, you know, who, yeah. I don't yeah, want to. Because also there was, um, you know, there was the uh, the Don't Cheat in Our Hometown that was kind of a mix of old tracks that had Albert and the Hot Band yeah. on it. And then there was like Uncle Pen right. and other stuff that you had played on. And yeah. so, yeah. so what was that like when you did have to play some of those tunes like Honey, Won't You Open That Door and things like that, that were, were Albert had played on it and you, and you know, were you allowed to kind of do your own thing or? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, now what I did I, I did Albert's intro, or whatever it was. Right. And one time we were doing it, we were, a, it was at a huge arena. I don't know where it was. But we, we start that song, and of course, I got the pickups. So here I go with great confidence. But I am, I'm, I'm, I'm up a, a, a semitone. I'm in the wrong damn key. <laughs> so the whole bang comes in, you know, bang, it's like, <laughs> yes, yes. But of course, 
I, you know, everybody in the band, all heads went, you know, and, and, and afterwards I said, look, next time anything like that happens, don't spin your head around and look, looking at me or anybody else like that. That just gives the game away. It sounded bad enough as it was without you going, you know, in tantamount all pointing to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was my fault, but boy, you know, I just played with such confidence and went, oh, yeah. good, what am I doing? <laughs> so but, were you given any kind of input when you were doing your solos or was it just like impress me, you know, or just kind of do what you do? Yeah, he, he, he never told me to do anything. And as I said, I can't remember what the Albert thing was. It was trying, maybe he's trying to paint a picture. Or I don't know what it was, but yeah. Um, but no, I, it, we went in the studio and we played the things and my fills, nobody ever said anything about my fills, nothing was ever changed. <laughs> I do remember one thing that was kind of funny. In One Way Rider, I think it was One Way Rider, in the solo, there's a little spot in there to go, well, you know, I, I'm still sitting outside and Skaggs was, was comping solos. So he said, oh, come in and have a listen. So I went in and had a listen and I heard that. Diddle, 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 diddle. I went, I would never have played that. I would never have phrased like that. And he said, you did just play that. I said, no, no, no. You just edited that to make it sound like that. I would never have phrased anything like that. And this went on and on and on. You know? <laughs> it was all humorous, you know, but yeah. I still, well, I haven't heard that track in forever, but whenever I hear it, you go, oh. You know, yeah. it was it was just so it was twee as we say at home. Yeah. You know, but anyway. so from from seeing you know the the foot you know of course on on YouTube there's you know footage of of you know you playing with Skags like on Austin City Limits and different you know yeah. award shows and different things like that and it and it looks like from the outside it looks like that y'all had a. Uh, you know, a good musical relationship where he seemed, oh, yeah. you know, where it seemed like y'all really played off each other. And it seemed like the whole band kind of, yep. uh, you know, had had fun to a degree. Well, Skaggs and I got on famously, you know, I mean, he had a good sense of humor and he was pretty silly. And, you know, um, he, he got a little bit, <laughs> I think I told you yesterday about the it, underneath the scratch plate on my guitar, yeah. it said 666. Well, you know, I'm not a religious man, period. So, yeah. you know, I just thought, oh, that's interesting that I would end up with this. So I, I teased Skaggs as well, you know, I think I showed him 666 under the scratch plate, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and we actually think it was 999, but I milked it for all it was worth. Right. But I, apparently he, he uh, Skaggs told Bowden, I don't know if he was serious, and I said, I think that flax into devil worship. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me yes but no Skaggs never ever told me what any ever anything to play yeah and there were some there were some parts I remember one of the songs we did this was this was part of the demo yeah, you, you may but see that intro walking. Yeah, that intro was on the demo, as I remember. Some okay. guy in Texas wrote it, and a great lick. Get the old low strings going. High action. Yeah. <laughs> and 
again, just was there any type of input as far as your tone or anything, or was it just like this is my sound? You're, you know, and he's capturing, it, you know, as the producer. This is my sound. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Excuse me. No, so, it, no, there was. No, I mean, well, let's be fair. Skaggs had heard me play with Joe's son. Yeah. So he'd heard me play through an L nine, and he knew I wasn't a quiet and timid player. Yeah. By any by any stretch, you know, and I guess that's what he wanted. Um, no, he not once did he ever tell me don't do that or don't do this or do this or do that. Yeah. I remember once though he did say something to me because I love thirds, you know, all these, you know, those, those pull offs you were doing yesterday. Incidentally, that pull off, mm -hmm. I always started it on the D. Yeah. It gives it a different feel instead of going, because it's half backwards then. No, I can't do it like that. See, that's what happens when you learn it the wrong way, like I did. <laughs> <coughs> well, it's, oh, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, great, great allergies. Um, oh, I, was, I had a good little point I was going to make. Well, you were talking about Skaggs not liking thirds or something. Oh no, he said to me something. Well, he, he didn't, he, he was, I think he was intimating, do you, do, do you ever think about using any, any other harmonies? I mean, I, I can't remember the conversation, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I, I remember my retort was something like, I like them, you know, it was yeah. something, I don't know. But it was, it, it, these were just suggestions. You know, right, or, right. or ideas. There, there, there was there was no, nothing rigid about this at all, and I couldn't have dealt with that. You know, yeah. it's you know I heard all these dreadful stories about, especially in the bluegrass world. You know, when you came home after the gig, working with Bill Monroe or some of these people, you were expected to go out to the farm and mow the lawn. Yes, I've I've heard I've I've heard those stories oh. from many different sources, so I believe they're true. Yeah. Right. Yeah, really. I'm I'm a guitar player. Hire a lawnmower guy. You know, it's I just that amazed me. I, these two, I said, are you kidding? Yeah. You know, you you would never see anything like that in England. You know, somebody trying to manipulate you like that. You know, yeah. or take advantage. Right. Anyway. So, <laughs> so, so. Sorry about that. No, no, you're fine. So so after after about three years. Uh, you know, you and Ricky parted ways. Uh, you know, there's always yeah, been different I, conjecture about that. So I was just wondering yeah, what well, what what's the what's the real story? Well, the real story is is that um, I'd been there three years. I just got married. Um, I was getting tired of the road. I had tried every musical permutation on the solos and fills. You know, I was just I. I'd worn out the material for, for myself, if you will. And um, all the other players in the band would always come to me and bitch and moan about money. Why they came to me, I don't know, but they did. And, and I, after a while, I got sort of pissed off with it. I, we sat down in the back of the bus. And I don't know whether this was just me being mischievous or truly serious, but... I said, look, you know, if you're really pissed off about not getting money, I'm not a union man, but go on strike. 
just before the gig. We're not, you know, I don't know, telling them all this. And of course, as I said yesterday, out came the pitchforks and the flames, you know, oh, off to the portcullis. Yes. <laughs> so, um, Anyway, I don't know how that got back to Skaggs or, you, you know, I, I, I really don't remember the details, but anyway, he took every member of the band on the bus and they all wilted and broke down, you know, so, but I was your evil instigator, of course, you know, well, that's okay. I had three years, I, you know, so Skaggs invites me up to his room. Well, invite might not be the right word. Um, and he said, Ray, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fire you. I said, you can't do that. I, I quit, you know, and I always wanted to say that, you know, the old, the old, I'm sure it's been said many times, but I'd never said it. But, um, and then I made the gentleman the offer of, uh, you know, you want me to stay on and uh, till you find a replacement? No, that's okay. He said, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I went, oh, okay. So, so the very last night, um, it was, I think it was Vancouver. And the very last night, my, my wife, my then wife had sent this huge, I mean, it was, I don't know how much it must have cost, a huge bouquet of flowers that were, you know, just wide as hell and taller than me and everything. It must have cost her a fortune. Anyway, with the road crew and everybody, we, we set the flowers up in between the chair or whatever the amp was sitting on, you know, they were able to, so here's the amp and then the flowers are in there and the guys put lights underneath them. So there's just this gorgeous peacock tail of, of flowers right in front of me. <laughs> and it was, and Skaggs never even acknowledged it. You know, he never said anything about it. You know, I, I, think, he, I, think, I think I saw a wry grin once when he looked at it, you know, when I was, but it was time not to be there and I didn't give a rat's ass, you know, so good. I'd go and sleep in my own bed with my wife, you know, that was, yeah. and so it didn't bother me at all. It yeah, didn't then, bother me one little bit. And then interestingly enough, anyway, you know, he, he used, his, you know, he started using the lab series L9 and, you know, of course he yeah. had to, he kind of, you know, got into the b-bender thing and uh, and kind of did his you know had to he had to learn your licks and or his version of your licks and things like that well yeah i mean to be honest whether he learned my licks or not you know he could have just played he could have played guitar he's good enough guitar player yeah. i mean you know it, it would be it would be completely different but he could have filled that that saved himself some money i suppose yeah. <laughs> well I don't know. It was it was time to not be there, yeah. and and I wasn't. And got back to town and started, um, you know, tapping into sessions and sit. You know, I was already getting lots of calls because of Highway Forty Blues and Heartbroken things like that. And you know, there's. I always liked it that the guitar. You know, I'm a big believer in if somebody's taking a solo, don't make me struggle. But crank it up in the mix, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Um, and I always, you know, I know I'm a Deep Purple freak, but I, I still use Deep Purple um, album in rock as the one of the best sonic recordings I've ever heard. I mean, you don't have to struggle to listen to anything. And the separation is, is brilliant. And I've never forgotten that sonically. I always 
hear that. Well, you know, the fact that it was Deep Purple, my favorite rock band, was was by the by to be honest, you know, about this. But yeah, I just love that clarity, you know, that that uh, that they had. But yeah. So so you so you moved on to, to doing sessions and you were you know kind of staying in Nashville and played you know with Lacey J Dalton and Kathy Matea and and uh, you know the, these sessions so did you did you enjoy you know because session session work has its own you know challenges as far as you know like like you mentioned before the PAT so there's there's some PAT yeah. a lot of PAT that goes on in session work and then there's also the the producers that allow you the freedom to play what you want to play and those yeah. that are like no 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 you know you're you know I, I want you to play like what Reggie Young did or something yeah like that. well if you know I have a great story about Reggie telling a story about this I don't know it might have been on your show yeah but when Reggie first came to Nashville apparently whoever was producing it said to Reggie hey Reggie um you couldn't give me some of that Grady Martin, could you? Or, or whoever yes. it was. Yes. And Reggie said, uh, I've got his phone number here if you need it. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. In that, in that quiet, yes. disarming way. You know, I'd have probably said it. Well, I've got his phone number here if you want it. You know, and Reggie goes, he's got his phone number. You know, just, yeah. right, just shut him right up, you know. Right. But uh, no, I, you know, I was very fortunate. I got called for the way I played. Perfect. Absolutely. I mean, if I get called yeah. for two or three songs on an album that, that are appropriate for me, perfect. And I, I remember doing a demo session where Russ Paul was on Steel. It was just demos. And this one song comes up and I, I, I couldn't hear a damn thing, you know. So I, I, to save torturing everybody, and I did this a few times, I think. Not that I had to do it many times, but I went in and spoke to the writers and said, I just don't hear anything on this, you know. So to save us going round and round and round, you know, why don't you get, you know, Russ, get Russ to do it or something. You know, and you know, Russ picked the guitar up and knocked it out and it was great. You know, it was yeah. perfect for the song. And, you know, things like that, but very rarely did that happen. And um, as I say, you know, getting called for the way you play is the biggest compliment. That's and the I, greatest. I was, I was doing, and I loved working with these guys. Um, it'll come to me. Anyway, I'm doing this session with these guys. Uh, it's much later on when I was in the Hartford band. And um, what's that on the screen? Get off there. Um, see, I distracted myself. So God, I hate this. Working for these oh, guys and in, in the heart, and you were in the Hartford band, and these guys oh, called yeah, you on yeah. a session. So they 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 booked me to play on a lot of their on, on um, it's coming to me his name um, on on his singles on his album and, and I remember doing one overdose and, and, and you know and these jokers because they're all great fun we all having lots of fun you put his thing in he you need to get further out than that mate <laughs> I went oh that's easy you know yeah. and then he, he would hold up a four pack of, of draft Guinness, you know, yeah. <laughs> incentive when the gig's done. That's right. But it, but it was great to hear that. No, man, go get crazier, you know, instead of going, no, I'm not sure about that, you know, yeah. got anything else, you know. So I was very lucky and being an impatient, intolerant son of a bitch, you know, I, I, I couldn't have 
tolerated that very much. You know, if you want Reggie, then you call Reggie or, or right. you know, it's, there's his phone number, but yeah. I never had that. Not never once did I have that. Yeah. So then you, uh, you got back out on the road again with, uh, with Marty Stewart and you were playing yeah. on, the, on the records too. And that was, that yeah. was a really neat band because it was kind of stripped down. You just had bass drums and, and two guitar players and, right. and those, those gigs were really cool to see you play. And, and Richard Bennett was doing a lot of producing and. Yeah. Richard played on some of the records on some of the solos too. Uh, the, the cool thing about the band was it was six people on a bus, a bus driver, a roadie and four musicians. That's about the best size ratio I can think of on a bus. Right. <laughs> With Skaggs, we went from Nashville to California with all the girlfriends on board. Ooh. Yeah, well, it's anyway, so, so you, from one extreme to another. Right. And it was great, you know, um, the, the music was great fun. Marty and I played completely differently, but, you know, he's a great telly player. And I love his singing, you know, he's just got a, you know, yeah. great singer, but he's got a, some character there, you know, you I, an ID, he's got an ID voice and his mandolin playing is just amazing. Wonderful. So that was good fun. And when I was doing that with Marty, the, um, the reverb in my lab series, which I barely had on, you know, I, I didn't, you know, less is more. Unlike Marty, bless his heart, you'd always have his reverb on, on about seven or eight, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, so, I used to have to stand up and put my boot on top of the amp for the reverb to kick back in. Well, one day it went out and it never did come back on. And after about two songs, I went, that's one more thing you don't need to worry about breaking down anymore because now you'll never use that reverb again, ever. Yeah. And in a, in a, in a club, uh, in, a, in a club, you've got room ambience which is more than enough to make, you know, why do you need re reverb when the room ambience should take care of that? Unless it's really a part of your sound like Marty's, but, oh, I was dropping, you know, unnecessary things, you know, as fast as I could. Pedals, yeah. no walk of shame, please. No walk of shame. <laughs> yes, because it, it as as you went along, it seemed like your sound kept getting more stripped down and not, yeah. not like, but, but, and you kept having yeah. more and more control, you know, from the guitar instead of trying to get it through pedals or benders or anything else. Reverb. Yeah, well, the, the, there was a time I, I had some TC, uh, TC stuff. And, uh, you know, after a while, I just sort of went, you know, I'm I'm tired of this. I you know, and, and and the attraction of just a guitar, a cable, and an amp. You know, the more I thought about it, and the more I played it, I went, I'm done. You know, and the the only thing I had was that. Uh, um, where is it? Right, right there on the neck was the uh, what was the um, the tuner what was the company Sabine. What? Sabine, and it was called it was called the um, the Sabine. Oh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was the best damn tuner I'd ever seen. And Glazer wired Joe Glazer, dear Joe, wired 
it into my into the pickups and this so you can turn the volume down and still chew without extraneous noise coming in that you would get with the stick on right one yeah so you put that on so now i've got an amp a cable a guitar and a tuner and it's all in one so i'm truly i'm truly done now you know it's yeah. like okay that's it yeah so so you uh you know you played with marty for a while and then you you kind of you know came back to town and you uh you you made a solo record called untitled island i did yeah with um michael snow and jim krause the engineer um the three of us uh, co-produced it but that was fun yeah and then it had you know a a tune that of course has been you know chet and mark knopfler you know covered the tahitian sky yeah yeah now that you know it's it i'll tell you a story about that and i, I put this in the book um i i had met chet and i don't know if i mentioned this and i always you know i i'm always afraid to mention this because you know i'm not blowing a trumpet but we were backstage at the Grammy, uh, at the CMA Awards, the first one we did when we won Band of the Year. And Boughton comes up to me and says, my parents were there too. And Boughton says, oh, somebody wants to meet you. And I was talking to my parents and a young lady. And I said, nah, you know, I'll, I'll, he said, I, I think you want to meet this person. So I went, all right. So I went over there and Chet had sought me out to tell, <laughs> tell me how much he liked my play. You know, I mean, I don't know if I said it, but I, I'm, you know, are you sure you got the right player? <laughs> you know, yeah. so, but, you know, so we got to know each other and I'd hang out at his office and I did, ah, um, oh, what's the name of that train? Um, Main Street Breakdown. May, thank you so yes, much. Yes, I remember, yeah, off, yes. Oh, I man, that. yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the memory is shot, I have to say. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and, and I called Chet up when I said, man, I want to do um, Main Street Breakdown on the album. I said, but I, I, I don't know how, how you played that. What was, you know, I didn't realize it was in B flat and every third note was the, the third of, of B flat, which is a D, you know, so he played it. And I went, oh, because I was down here trying to play it, you know, properly. Yeah. <laughs> so he showed me the thing. Oh. And it's a, it's a Django thing. It's a Django-esque. Thing, the idea of that. He, Django did it all the time. Anyway, I, I learned the thing and played it, but uh, there was something else I was going to say there. We were talking about Tahitian Sky and Chet and Mark. Oh, yeah. Well, let me tell you this. This was a sad day for me. I had been, I'd been out on the road with Jerry Douglas, um, a jazz guitar player. It was called the Steel String Tour or something. Yes. You yes. know, lots of I went out and did that for a bit. And I, you know, I really shouldn't, shouldn't have done it because I'm not a front man. You know, I don't want to be out there playing on my own. It, I, I'm so used to playing with bands. I mean, we, we did have a band, but it was still, I was the focus point, you know, right. I was the one taught, you know, it didn't really throw me. Anyway, so we're out doing this thing and I'm playing Tahitian Skies and this guy comes up to me afterwards. He said, um, have you ever heard a track called Why Worry by Mark Knopfler? And I went, no. <laughs> Already my gut is darkening, you know. <laughs> and I'm going, he said, well, that Tahitian sky sounds a lot like it. 
you know, my only hit, yes. <laughs> if you will. So I very quickly went and found that album. And the, first, the what I was interested in really was when it was released, and it was released before I wrote Tahitian Skies. And uh, and I, I, I did, I eventually listened to it. And, and the beginning of the damn thing is, is exactly that. Or, or very similar to that, it's the same feel. And it just, when I heard it, I went, oh no, really? Well, you know, I know I didn't steal it because I, you know, I never listened to Knopfler's albums. You know, I, I, I did like some of the singles, but I wasn't a huge fan of his playing for some reason. I, you know, great player, but just didn't appeal to me. But so anyway, yeah, there's nothing I can do about it, but I'm not feeling really good about that. And I ran into Mark in town and uh, over Third and Lindsley, I think it was. And I, I wandered up, you know, we'd already met. And I wandered up and I said, man, you know, I, I hope you didn't think I, you know, I was just mortified that that, that had happened, you know. And I said, man, I hope you didn't think I I nicked that, you know. And he went, oh, no, 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 he, he was fine. But you know what, in, what interested me later on, and I obviously I can't ask Chet now, and I haven't asked, I haven't seen Knopfler in forever, but when Chet and Knopfler heard that, especially Knopfler heard it, why, I wonder why he didn't say to Chet, that's very reminiscent of a song I'd done. Are you sure we should do this? But apparently he didn't. So I don't know, but it was, it, that, that was not a fun moment, you know, the old... Yeah. I, I certainly think that if uh, if Knopfler had some uh, objections, he would have done that before they recorded it for an album. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. I don't. Yeah, I would think you'd have nothing to sweat about. If at most you could say is that you know maybe selfishly you know Knopfler could say, well, I influenced him or something like that. But well, yeah. no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but no, I, I you know I'm you know I'm I'm not a a, a copyright lawyer but uh, certainly you can tell that there are some similarities but I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't say one was a, a copy well, it's, by any means. Yeah, no, it's 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 really just the, the the first couple of measures. Yeah. that have that feel and same thing. And I yeah, I I was mortified as one would be. Yeah. <laughs> so so after the uh, un Untitled Island album, uh, you you were you also started playing with Jamie Hartford, you know, the son of John Hartford. Oh, well that, that was much later on. Okay. That was, um, the Untitled Island thing came out, I think, in well, I was with Marty, so it would have been ninety or ninety-one, so okay. around there. Um, and we did that. Um, and we had some amazing players on it. And I, I'd like to say here and now, if I may, you know, to all the players that played on that, that spec their time. And we were never in a position to, to pay them, you know. Yeah. But they, they kindly spec their time for me, which was, you know, still means an awful lot. And if, if I can ever send them a hundred bucks each, I would, I, that would make me feel a lot better. But they never got paid. But we all did a lot of spec stuff, you know. What are you doing today? Oh, nothing. You want to? You know, it's, there's no money, but sign the time card, and we'll double the scale if we, if it gets 
place. And if you're not doing anything else, when you're going to have a play and have some fun. Yeah. So, you know, spec thing, it, it was quite, it, it is common or was common in town to do that. But anyway, they, they did that. We finished their album and it, it, it seemed to be well received. Um, um, then I was just still in town doing sessions and stuff. Let me get my chronology right here. Um, okay, so that, yeah, that, that would have been with Marty. And after the Marty thing, I just stayed in town. I think I, I went out and did the odd gigs with Lionel Cartwright. I did, I played, I did some sessions with Lionel. That was a lot of fun. He had some good songs. Um, um, I, 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 well, I did play on some of Kathy Mateo's stuff, as you, as you mentioned. But she, um, and I knew her very well. She was a waitress before she became a star at Friday's Restaurant. Did you, did you ever mm -hmm. know her down there? I didn't know her down there, but I knew about that, yeah. Right, because she had, used to have a 45 record with her hair pulled through the pole. <laughs> and, you know, that's how, she was, that's how she was serving. So I knew her from there. But, um, but I got the call for it. So anyway, I've already played on a couple of albums with her and she, her guitar player, I don't, I don't remember that wasn't, um, he, oh no, it wasn't that. Her guitar player was a guy called John Mock. And somebody in the band couldn't make it. I don't know if it was a piano player or something like that. So Kathy apparently said, Give Flack a call, get him in there. I like to watch him pull those funny faces when he plays. <laughs> you know, and don't we all, you know, Steve yeah. Simpson always used to call that three pounds of wince. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think I'm as bad as some people. Yeah. But anyway, that's, she would say she was, she was great. I loved her to death. Yeah, and, I, you, and for a bit, you played with Terry Clark. You played a, a little bit with yeah. her out on the road. Now, I, I'll tell you about the Terry Clark thing. And I've, I've said this in the book. I should never have done this gig. And I cursed myself that I did it. I did it because I was broke. Yeah. Lesson to be learned there. Go and take a day job instead of playing music you really don't want to play or relate to. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I knew the bass player. And he said the guitar player was, I don't know, was leaving or I don't quite remember. I said, well, I'm looking for a gig. Well, okay, so I get the gig. And then I got to sit down and try and learn Brent's Mason stuff. Well, I can't play Brent's Mason, Brent Mason stuff. You know, it, the way he plays, the way I play, it's just natural second nature. Right. And I, you know, I tried, I tried, but you know. Um, I remember once out on the road, because I was the old fart in the band, uh, and we all had our set lists. One time, I remember I, I misread the set list and I went to the next song ahead of everybody else. So I start playing one song and they're playing the song on the set list. So they, yeah, we all chuckled about it. But the next day, the set lists, are, my set lists are about this big. <laughs> I <laughs> was. It was funny, but um, I liked Terry a lot. I we had a lot of fun and giggling. She loved to arm wrestle me, and fortunately, I she never did beat me. But um, but I liked her. She was she was a character. I didn't like the music at all. Um, I did it because I was broke, and um, 
and they fired me and I could not have been happier. Yeah. Couldn't have been happier. So their word to the wise, you know, if you don't like the music, don't do it. It's not worth the aggravation, you know, yeah. it wasn't for me. Yeah. So then, then I guess chronologically, we kind of get up to uh, to Jamie Hartford, the the son of John Hartford, and, and playing playing around town yeah. like at Wolfie's and and the different you know, yeah. places that y'all played here. And I I saw y'all, you know, and there's a, a you know a generation of players here in town that that came in town in time to see you, you know, with the Jamie Hartford <laughs> band and uh, yeah, yeah Guthrie Trap and yeah. other guys that you know really you know have lots of memories yeah. about that, yeah. Well, it, you know, it was a great band, and that band came to, came together the same way Meal Ticket did, which was um, actually I went down to the Exit Inn for a beer with with Dave Pomeroy, or either he was there. Or, anyway, we're having a beer, and Jamie was going to play there that night, and Jamie made the mistake of saying, "Do you want to sit in?" Oh yeah, because this this was already a real pocket, and Jamie already had those great songs, and I think the bass player was um, guy played with the the um, the amazing rhythm aces. I can't think of his name. Yeah. Anyway, the night that I had sat in with them, um, the there was a sub bass player, uh, Charlie. Oh, I can't think of his last name. The best stand-up bass player I've ever had the pleasure to listen to and play with. Talk about intonation. Stunning. And I, I hold up, um, what's his name? The, the Swedish bass player, Pedersen, is it? Pedersen something? Oh, I don't you know. listen to him. You listen to that guy playing stand-up bass with Joe Pass. And he, he's all over the damn place, pitch-wise. It's horrible. You know. And how, how is it that bass players and trumpet players get away with playing all those bum, bad, wrong notes? You know, a trumpet player, oh, at the end of the song, you're going, if I did that, you're, you're all over my ass, you know? Right, so, right. But um, where were we? Yeah, so you're, you're playing with, with Jamie Hartford, and Jamie... Yeah. Had, you know, he had a, he had a great album uh, called What About Yes that you played on and played a bunch of bunch of great solos. Y'all did a live album, and you you did a bunch of playing around around Nashville. And yeah. by that point, yeah. you know, going to see you play, you you were still playing your telly, but you had this little BR one Gibson amp, and yeah, uh, and the, that that was a gift as well, as I say. And so yeah, that was like a late '40s Gibson amp that had like a field coil speaker on it, and it had like yeah. these. And uh, you know, I remember it had three three big knobs on the back of it, and this venting, and this yeah, it was just yeah. a crazy looking '40s amp. It, it mine was 1946 apparently, okay. and it had a big G. Yes, the Gibson, but the G looked like the Gretsch G. Yes, which is well, anyway, not that I cared about that. I just cared about the sound of it. And I, I think I would go into, the, which would be the higher input, the microphone or the, what was the other one? There were two, there's only two In, plugs. Instrument, it'd be instrument or microphone. Yeah, instrument or microphone. I can't remember which one was the louder one, but that's the one I- Instrument's usually, is usually it? louder, okay. yeah. That's where I, I certainly tested it and that's where I would have plugged in then, but. So that's a 10 inch speaker, was it? A 12, 12, maybe a 12, 12, yeah. I think it was a 12. Okay. Well. 
I remember somebody telling me, you know, be very careful with those those field coil speakers because the power is going through that magnet to drive the amp. That's right. And it and it will kill you stone dead if you touch it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't. Good. <laughs> yeah. I didn't go anywhere near it. Well, yeah, it was it was a it was the best amp I ever played um, mm. for small clubs, smaller gigs, and and the studio, of course. Um, and the, I used to use the lab for the bigger gigs, you know, and half the time, um, you know, my, my sound check at gigs, you know, on the bigger gigs, everyone, you know, drums and banging around and all that, you know, I hated sound checks. And I'd be on the bus and, you know, the, we'd have the walkie talkies and they go, okay, your turn. So I'd get up there and all, all I ever played was, was the... <laughs> Whoops. Can you hear that? Yeah, okay, done. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> well, it was true that, you know, what are you going to do with me? You're yeah. going to do what? No. And we all, we all used to laugh about it, you know, sound crew, you know, down, down, down. Back to the bus. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But yeah, sound checks. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah, I mean, I I know they're necessary, but um, I I I ran away from them because I really didn't need to do one. Yeah, there was there was nothing, you know. There's the amp. Here's the sound. Done. Anyway. Yeah, you know, you know, and you're not using a bunch of pedals where you're changing like your no. gain level a bunch and and no. or your tone. We're so. all, we're down to bare bones here, thankfully. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so then, after playing with with Hartford for a while, uh, then you. Then you you kind of you you shifted and you you kind of you know moved away from uh, from from playing out as much. Well, what happened? Well, we, uh, the Hartford band. I'd been in the band the band for three years, and <clears throat> I I don't think this is overly dramatic, but I I always compared the reason I picked up the guitar when I was eleven was because of the Jamie Hartford band. I mean, obviously, I didn't know it, but that yeah. band let me be the player. Um, Jamie never told me what to play, and neither would I have listened. You know, I certainly didn't tell him what to play. You know, we just played. And it was great, and he had these great songs. And um, But that amp was, it was just wonderful. And I know where it is, and I can buy it back if I want. <laughs> so <laughs> I know where all my stuff is. Yeah, because part part of this is is that you you know you you got rid of the Lab series and the Gibson and you sold your your uh, your Rosewood board sixty eight Tele and other stuff and kind of and kind of moved on to another chapter of your life. I did, and I, I I really I really don't remember much of what I was doing then. You know, I don't think I was playing that much. Um, I know I. Uh, yeah, it's, that's a bit vague there. I'm not quite sure what was going on. But I, uh, <clears throat> the Hartford Band came, came, to, uh, came to an end. Number one, I, I, wasn't, I was no longer so enamoured of um, Jamie's songs. And that's not a criticism. He, he's a great writer, but they didn't pique my interest like the stuff he had going when, I, when we first came together. You know, I, it, it was a different thing. Plus... 
Charlie Chadwick was the stand-up bass player. Charlie had moved on to other things, and we had Dave Rowe come in to play with us. You know, and Dave's a great rockabilly bass player. So it gave the band a slightly different, um, slightly different feel. And I was already going, well, I don't know about this anymore. Well, and and I have to preface this with, you know, Dave Pomeroy is a really, really old and good friend of mine. But um, I just never warmed to his bass player. It was, it was just, and there's nothing I haven't told Dave. I mean, you know, it, it, it was just too loud and too many notes. Mozart, if, if you remember the film. <laughs> you know, too many notes, Mozart. But it, for me, it was, you know, I, my favorite bass player is Norbert Putnam, or one of them, you know, just right. simple. I know he's not even playing, I don't think now. But. And so when Dave used to fill in on bass for, for, you know, for Charlie when he couldn't make it or whatever it was, and and the rest of the guys wanted to get to to get um, to get Dave in. I said, well, I said, no, I said, you know, what you're doing there is is your we don't need another lead player. Certainly not on bass. We've got Paco on the harp, Jamie and myself, and Paco's uh, Hammond organ effect, you know, we we were covered. Well, so anyway, I left, but I, I didn't. It, it was Dave was the straw that broke the camel's back, I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. But I went, oh no, because Dave just booms. It just booms, you know, and it, it took over the whole stage, and and I didn't like it. So I handed in my notice, you know, which was readily accepted. <laughs> so, you know, because Jamie and I were just like chalk and cheese, as we say in England. You know, two different ends of the spectrum. I mean, he likes to go hunting. I abhor hunting. You know, unless it really is for you know, if you if you don't have any food and you're starving. You know. um, but so, so he's a good old country boy, and I'm not. You know, and it was yeah it, the culture factor was it was never on the same level. You know, but but I loved his stuff and his songs and his guitar playing. Great guitar player. Yeah. But anyway, so so I leave because it's time to leave for whatever the reasons, and um, I just didn't bother. You know, I said, where 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 am I going to find something like that with that kind of pocket um, and those kind of songs and that? You know, and, well, I'm I'm probably not going to find it. So jokingly, I always said, and it, and it was a joke. I said, you know, the only thing I can think of that would replace this would be if I played second guitar for Ry Cooder and Jim Keltner, <laughs> which is a joke, but that that just says how highly I regarded Rick Lono, the drummer, and Jamie, because for me, it would take Keltner and Jamie and uh, Cooder to replace that. Right. That magic. But it was, it was tongue in cheek, you know. I was just hoping that they wouldn't call to, oh shit, now I've got to go and do it. <laughs> oh, now I've got to go and do the gig. I was just kidding, Jim. <laughs> it was just a joke. <laughs> but, you know, that was, um, so that came to an end and then I just floated around. I can't remember much what I was doing, to be honest. I mean, the odd session, I suppose. 
Yeah. But I, I, it's, it's a bit of a big gap there. Um, no. So let's, uh, one of the, you know, of course, I, you know, we've hit on it before is just you, you played, you play with a more aggressive, you know, touch and you use bigger strings. And when most of the other guys were using, you know, really, you know, light gauge strings and a light touch, you were, you know, using a higher action and bigger strings. And like back in the day, you know, I, you know, in, in that video that I did, I talked about the strings you used to use, which were like 10, yeah. 11, 15, yeah. uh, 32, 42, 52. And now you use a little bit heavier than that. Uh, well, I, I jacked up the, the skinny ones quite a long time ago, to be honest. Yeah. Um, that's 16, 12, 11. And the, the 16 and the 12 uh, were as heavy and as light as I could go. Because if I wanted to bend the G string up a whole step and then play some other notes over on the B string without, without that note moving right. and maintaining perfect intonation. And 17 would have been too heavy. It was started to slip. You know, and 15, I knew I could go a little heavier. And the heavier I could go, the happier I was. Right. You know, because, you know, I. It, I, I always jokingly said that, you know, I, you're playing guitar like a construction worker. Right. You know, it was that kind of rah. And uh, I think I wrote in the book something about some smart ass line of, yeah, if the solo was really tough, I'd put on my hard hat. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then uh, also you had to, uh, to develop a, a kind of a, a technique of uh, reinforcing your fingernails to play that aggressively and not just tear, rip your nails to shreds. So tell us a, a little bit about that. Yeah, well, let me show you the nails if, if you can get. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. So if I, if I do this, you'll be able to see the there's kind of a lump. <laughs> right. And what I do, I'll. I'll show you what I do when I can find it. it because, you know, this may help people who, who have really weak nails. Well, I'll be damned. Well, you can just describe it. Well, I was, that is too weird. So what I do is, is I would, you know, file the nail down Oh, this is weird trying to do this. I'd fight, you know, I'd file the nails down and then, you know, to a length that was acceptable. This one is a little bit short now mm -hmm. for some reason, this one. But I'd file them down, get them where I wanted to, and then. <laughs> God, this is weird. So then I would. Yeah, just, just hold it up, you know, like sideways. Yeah. So then, right. So then, boy, this is weird. So then I would just put glue, a little, just a drop of glue on the side, you know, on the right, on, on the left side of the nail that's yes. going to make contact with the string. And then with an emery board, I would tip it, dip it, the emery board into the acrylic powder. And then from about this height, gently shower this acrylic powder down onto the glue 
mm-hmm. you know, and then at some stage you're, you're able to put your whole fingernail in the powder. And that, you know, after about 30 seconds, that's solid as, as rock. And, you know, then I would buff it down so it's nice and smooth and then it will roll off the strings. But I can't play uh, without the nails on there. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I mentioned earlier that, um, I don't know if I did, but going in into Abbey Road Studios to record what became NW8, which was supposed to be the answer, England's answer to area code 615. Okay. And the, the NW8, because that's, you know, Abbey Road's um, postal code. And we were going to go in the next day and cut this stuff. And um, the doors back then were really heavy doors and they had these huge hinges at the top. Yes. And I it ripped all three nails off. The day before, I was going to go in and play with this band that hopefully was going to be England's answer to Area Code 6 and 5. I couldn't have been more chuffed, as we say. Um, so I got no nails, you know, and I, I really couldn't play. And I, I heard... It was many, 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 many years, much later on. I was already over here. And uh, somebody found a copy of it. And um, I listened to it and it was, it sounded like, um, I don't know, it, it, it wasn't even mixed. It was just horrible. And I, said, I sent a note to uh, Wayne Moss because I'd met Wayne, I think I'd, I'd worked over at Cinderella at least once, I think. And I sent him a note, you know, saying, hey, I don't know if I ever told you, but I was in this band, NWA, blah, 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 you know. And I said, well, they just sent me the, the recording of it. Do you want to hear it? And, you know, I was telling him, I said, you know, I don't like it. I think it's dreadful. You know, it's horrible. It's embarrassing. I don't never want to listen to it again. You know, So <laughs> I sent it to him and he went, yeah, he was very kind. He said, well, I hear what you mean. He said, I didn't notice that you didn't have your nails. Well, that's a personal thing. But I, I said, well, look, if you want to keep it, hang on to it, mate, because I'll never play it again. You know, it was, but it was, anyway, that's where the nail thing kicked in. I went, all right, that's enough of that. Yeah. You know, because I cannot play without them. And yeah. I guess at the time I, I, I wasn't using glue. I guess I, I don't know quite how I was doing it. But the glue helped me really lean in and, you know, pull those strings hard. And, yeah. you know. and this is always a personal thing, but uh, what have you, you know, it seems like you've always used little jazz picks. Are you still using those little? Yeah, right here. And you're even still using the old uh, speed picks with the twist on the end. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a 12 degree twist. Yeah. The, the idea being that it's twisted so the twist, if you hold a, normally you hold a pick, it, yeah. it goes at an angle to the string, unless right. you do this with your hand. So, you know, he did that 12 degree to have the pick sit flush to the string. Yeah. And you've used those picks since the early 80s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I found that I, I ran into Steve, Steve Zook, who made them originally uh, at a NAMM show. You know, I used to do loads of NAMM shows, you know, the, yeah, exhibition and show in whatever you know, and uh, he gave me a box of them, you know, and I I mentioned his name many times, and and now Dunlop's got them, I think. Yes. Yeah. 
Great picks. And I, it, you know, it, it's funny, that tuner I had, the, uh, the, the Sabine, I never saw anybody else with one of those. And no. it was the most simplest, best tuner, it, it, to my mind, in the world. Never saw anybody else with one. I never, well, this is a personal thing, of course. Right. I never saw anybody using these twisted picks. You know, I think it suits my twisted personality. Yes. <laughs> I hope, anyway. Yes. But yeah, no, the, I, I, playing the bigger picks, I, I started using these tiny things because <clears throat> you, you're much closer to the strings. Yeah. Some big old lumpy thing, you know. Well, yeah. well, well Ray, tell us with the, the children's book and uh, where, where can people pick that up if they want to pick one up? Well, um, it's, <laughs> I guess I have to back up a bit. I sent Red a, a copy of the, uh, the file and, and then I sent him a copy of the book when I got it printed, you know, and he went on Facebook and started telling everybody about, and I'd also sent him the file of the autobiography. So he's only on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know what he said, but suddenly I'm getting all these emails requesting to buy the book. And I, I went, well, which book, the, the boy who would be birds or the, or the autobiography? Because the autobiography is not in print. Right. They say, oh yeah, Red was raving about the boyhood would be birds, you know. So I, I actually have a little money sitting in my in in a, in a fresh PayPal account. <laughs> but I, if anybody wants to buy the book, this is like Christopher Hitchens always pitching his books. Yes. Always a good, good. If anybody wants to buy the book, there's a there's an email address here. If anybody wants to buy a copy, it's, I'll spell it for you. And this was the first, it's not my real name. It's just the name that sprang to mind. Ray Flackenhauser, R-A-Y-F-L-A-C-K-E-N-H-A-U-S-E-R at protonmail.com. Right. So if you want one, um, shoot me an email. All right. Well, we will also put that up on the on the screen too to uh, to make it cool. easy and uh, well, well, yeah. well, just know that you know you and whoever's going to watch this that you know the writing thing is is to me now where I was when I first discovered guitar. Yes, you know when it was like oh, blinders on, that's it, game's up. You know, <laughs> there will be nothing else. Right. And it's, I now, this is my creative outlet and it's just so much fun. It's just, you know, there are no rules, you know, and I, I don't, I don't like following the rules anyway, you know. Um, in fact, I, I, sent, I sent this one publisher a note saying, the book publisher said, um, because I'd looked at a lot of them, you know, and they want to jump, have you jump through all these hoops. So I, I sent a couple of them a note saying, look, I've got an idea. You know, you want all, all these writers to jump through hoops and send two paragraphs of this and a bio and a blah, 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 blah. You know, I said, I've got an idea. I said, look at the cover. And if the cover doesn't inspire you or pique your interest to go and read the first chapter, sending all that other crap to you would have been a waste of my time and yours. 
and I got loads of responses. <laughs> a ballsy response, yeah. Well, you know, I have a dear friend who, who, who helped me with the book somewhat. She understands the book world. But she was telling me stories of when she would follow the strict rules of editing, and she, you know, and, and she ended up pulling her hair out, going nuts and, and blew the whole thing off, you know. Whereas I would never do that, you know, and I've spoken to her and said, yeah, don't follow the rules. You know, get outside that box that they talk about and, you know, be your own character. So that's, you know, that's what I'm, and fortunately there is no rush to get, a, get this thing published. I don't know right. whether I'm gonna self-publish or traditional. They have this thing now called um, hybrid publishing. And that's, that's where you pay to have it printed you pay to have it stored and pay to have it edited. And I've written back to them saying, so if you've got your money up front, what's the incentive for you to work this product? And then they come back with all the blah, 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 blah. You know. Right. But as I say, fortunately, I'm in no rush to do it. And, um, and I've almost finished the second book. <laughs> Very nice. Well, Ray, I really appreciate you uh, sit, sitting down with me and uh, get, getting to know what, what you're up to now and, and talking about, you know, uh, your playing and, and your writing and uh, it's just a, a, a real treat and an honor. So uh, thank you so much, Ray. I appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, Zach. And I was just going to say, we never did speak about the baby powder. Oh yes, yes, the, the baby powder that you'd put on there to keep to keep things smooth when you're playing. Yes, when you instead of sweating on the neck. Yeah, right. And the first time I had I had to have it because I am not a real hand sweater very much. Yeah. But I was working with Joe Sun. We did a, a festival somewhere in mid August in Georgia or wherever it was, and it was just dripping humidity. Yeah, and I couldn't you know, and somehow right, there's a I don't know why there's a bottle of baby powder somewhere. I don't even know where I got it. And I, as soon as I put that on, like, oh man, that means I'm never ever not gonna be able to play without baby powder. And sure enough, it sat on the amp forever. And I, I would baby powder up every two or three times a song, and it became really, really addictive. Um, I don't use it so much now because I'm not doing that much. I don't really need it when I use the uh, the focus right, you know, for the overdub stuff. Yeah. But uh, it saved the day, I'm telling you. Of course, many a man has cursed me out, but, you know, <laughs> they, they tried it and then they got addicted. <laughs> yes, and then and then you snap the strings and you have a baby powder going everywhere. That's right. I used to do that all the time. And one of, one of the, I remember one day, I don't know what it was. I think I just put the baby powder on my hand or something and I had, had mistakenly clipped uh, the sim the drummer's symbol and in the lights this baby powder went all up and it looked amazing it, just, <laughs> it was a great lighting it was effect a great, yeah it was you know and i think i probably tried to, to do it you know whenever i felt like it but anyway it was it was fun stuff well it's been my pleasure thanks thanks yes. for thanks for inviting me yes well it was a pleasure to be able to uh you know, kind of let people know, you know, to remind people and also, yeah, to, to know what you're up to now and so that people can check out your, uh, 
you know, the, the children's book and, and we can look forward to uh, your, your autobiography, which uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> well, you could, maybe you could uh, show, the, show the cover. Absolutely, to, yeah, we'll show to it. To the public. Yes, we yeah. will. Because that's, that, now I have just had to say, uh, my good friend, uh, Al Shipston, who I do the guitar overdubs for, and he, because he understands word and book, how it's all put together, he was able to put the book together for me in 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 form in, in word. Uh, otherwise, I'd still be banging around in Notepad. But um, yeah, I just wanted to say you know thanks to Al because he 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 put that book together, and we would never ever have it in this form if it hadn't been for Al, you know. Yeah. So, thank you, pal. Yes. Anyway. Well, right. yeah, there you go. All right, well, have a, have a great rest of the day. You too. You too, Ray. Thank you so much. All right. My, my, my pleasure, Zach. See you, pal. Bye-bye, everybody.